Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Thank you so much for listening. In this, see, well, in this episode, we'll be starting a new series on some of the early novels of John Steinbeck. I, you know, I'll be using the very first volume of the Library of America edition of Steinbeck's novels. I think it's in four volumes now. I, I only own three of them, but the first volume covers the years 1932 to 1937. Uh, it's got five books in it. It's got Pastures of Heaven. To a God Unknown, Tortilla Flat, In Dubious Battle, and Of Mice and Men. So um, I'll just start going through those. I'll, I'll be starting with uh, a couple episodes on the Pastures of Heaven. And then I, I, I suspect this will be around eight or maybe nine episodes before I get through those five novels. And we'll see how it goes. Um, but let, let's first, let's talk about John Steinbeck a little bit. Um he was born in 1902 in, in Salinas, which is you know, Salinas, California, in that valley, where a lot of his novels were set, a very fertile valley, valley one of the most fertile in California and the United States. Uh, and that's what attracted a lot of um, the migrant laborers who populate so many of his, his novels. Um, his father was a mill manager and a descendant of missionaries in the Middle East. And I was looking at a little bit of his biography. And actually, there's a bunch of adventures from the 19th century that his family were involved with with the Middle East. His mother was uh, a teacher. His father's mill failed in 1910, and he went on to try to start his own business, and that failed. He eventually took a job as a treasurer for Monterey County, uh, kind of going on with as a, as a civil servant. In 1918, Steinbeck was in high school, and he almost died of pneumonia at that time. But that's also around the important time of his life when he started writing. He eventually enrolled in Stanford University, but he only attended loosely for four or five years, taking classes here and there. He also worked a variety of jobs throughout his high school and college years, often taking on the jobs that his characters would uh, take on in their in their life. And a lot of the characters he he develops, a lot of the settings he develops come from this period of his life. In 1925, he moved to New York City temporarily, taking on, taking on odd jobs in construction, he, but that only lasted for about a year and he returned to California in 1926, paying his way back uh, working on a ship. He eventually worked as a caretaker in Lake Tahoe, um, and that's where he met Carol Henning. He completed his first novel in 1928 which was called Cup of Gold. I won't be reviewing that here because I don't have a copy of it, but um, it's, it's not generally seen as one of his first mature works. Uh, Pastures of Heaven is, however, um, seen as his first mature work. He married Carol Hennings in 1930. Oh, he didn't meet her at the, as a caretaker, but he met her as a fi- at a fish hatchery, fish hatchery a few years before. So again, we see the wide variety of odd jobs that inform Steinbeck's early life. He ran into serious problems in his career in 1930, it looks like. Um, his work was rejected to a God unknown was rejected. He had other books that he couldn't get published. Um, so in 1923, he wrote the stories that would become The Pastures of Heaven, and that was published in 1932, which sort of revived his career. He wouldn't really have a hit until Tortilla Flat, um, but he started to get published more consistently. He started having trouble making ends meet, though, that he didn't make much money from these books. And by the end of 1932, he needed to give um, up the house that him and his wife were renting and essentially kind of move, basically 
I don't think literally moved back in with his parents, but was dependent on their support for a while. Um, so that sort of gets us to the period of time when Pastors of Heaven was published. Published in 1932, um, it makes up of 12 stories, um, but the two are maybe more of a thematic introduction and conclusion. They're both about voyagers and travelers coming to this Pastures of Heaven. It's a short read. It's about 169 pages. You can kind of read in one setting if you, I guess if you make a sandwich for yourself or uh, make some coffee. Um, you know, I it took me a while, though. I, I should have been able to read in one setting, but it took me a while. I, I found the characters in Pastures of Heaven incredibly engrossing. And I read this several years ago. And coming back to it, I was struck by how rich it was and how each character really stands out. I you know, I read, read it a few years ago, and I didn't really remember it when I picked it back up. But as soon as I started getting back into the characters, they, they pop back into my head in full form. So I had no trouble kind of getting back into it. And so I really savored these characters. And I was, for a while, I was reading just like one story a day and really making that a centerpiece of my day. So they're really engrossing stories. I don't think any of them are uninteresting. So in the end, there's about 10 characters, and each story is framed around one character all living in this small farm town in the Salinas Valley called the Pastures of Heaven. So let's get right into them. Um, the very first chapter is essentially about the discovery of the Pastures of Heaven. Um, and we learn right away that this place is, it has a pretty brutal past. I mean, the it's a place where Indians were basically forced into conversion by the Spanish. Um, it's got a very racially mixed and complex um, background, in fact, uh, to read a little bit of this um, quote. His descendants are almost white now. We could almost reconstruct the, his holy emotion of discovery, but the name he gave to the sweet valley and the hill remains there. It is known to this day as La Pasturas de Silio. By some regal accident, the section came under no great land grant. No Spanish nobleman became its possessor through a loan of money for his wife. For a long time, it lay forgotten in its embracing hills. The Spanish corporal, the discoverer, had always intended to go back. Like most violent men, he looked forward with sentimental wistfulness to a little time of peace before he died, to an adobe house beside a stream and a cattle nuzzling the walls at night. An Indian woman presented him with a pox, and when his face began to fall away, good friends locked him in the old barn to prevent the infection of others. And there he died, peacefully, for the pox, though horrible to look at, is no bad friend to its host. After a long time, a few families of squatters moved into the pastures of heaven and built fences and planted fruit trees. Since no one owned the land, they squabbled a great deal of its possession. After a hundred years, there were twenty families on twenty little farms in the pasture of heaven. Near the center of the valley stood a general store, a post office, and half a mile beyond the stream, a hacked and much initialed schoolhouse. End quote. So, a very beautiful place with a brutal past, a past of violence and conquest and forced conversion, smallpox and disease. So, that is the story we got. We got the story of a beautiful site, a site that attracts people, a site that people want to go to, but a site that's, in the end, when you take a closer look at it, a quite brutal reality is hidden beneath the beautiful facade. Chapter two. Chapter two is about the battle farm, um, or I guess um, Bert Monroe is the main character. Each one is really about a character um, or a, a family um, in some cases, but usually it's one character. Battle farm is in a sense, the haunted house of the pastures of heaven. Um, 
We learn a little bit about the bizarre nature of some of the early settlers. Uh, in this case, it's a man named Battle. Uh, although it's going to be bought up by the Monroes, who are a family that's almost every one of these stories. They're really a, a big family in the Pastures of Heaven. But the original settlers of it were was this guy named John Battle. And he's just presented as kind of a, a, a weird guy, very indifferent to his wife, very indifferent to his family, very religious background. Um, quote, John Battle came home from his caravan to claim the farm. From his mother, he inherited both the epilepsy and the mad knowledge of God. John's life was devoted to a struggle with devils. From camp meeting to camp meeting, he had gone hurling his hands about, invoking devils and then confronting them, exercising and flailing incarnate evil. When he arrived at home, the devils still claimed attention. The lines of vegetables went to seed, volunteered a few times, and succumbed to the weeds. The farm slipped back into nature, but the devils grew stronger and more opportune. Well, anyways, the battles abandon the farm. They die out, that line, and it becomes sort of the haunted house, the house that no one wants to buy, cursed, according to the local residents. Eventually, though, the Monroes come to buy this. They're, like everyone else in the story, attracted to the pastures of heaven for its beauty, its reputation, its idyllic setting. Um, and then when they get there, they find things aren't always um, what they seem. And I think that's the symbol of the haunted house kind of works that way. The pastures of heaven are haunted um, by memory, by family, by tragedy. Uh, but they still have that kind of beautiful image. The Monroes are a relatively large family. You have Bert Monroe, the patriarch, Mrs. Monroe. I think her name is in here somewhere, but I forgot it. Then you got three children, May Monroe, Jimmy Monroe, who Jimmy Monroe is kind of the local playboy and a bit of a womanizer, um, troublemaking young man. And then the youngest son, Manfred Monroe. We learn a lot about uh, Bert Monroe, that he was actually a failure in his previous life. Uh, and that's another theme here is people coming to the pastures of heaven for, in a sense, a second chance. Um, quote, Bert Monroe came to the pastures of heaven because he was tired of battling with the forces which inevitably defended, defeated him. He had engaged in many enterprises and every one had failed, not through any shortcoming on Bert's part, but through mishap, which if taken alone were accidents. Bert saw all the accidents together and they seemed to him the acts of fate mal malignant to the su his success. He was tired of fighting the nameless things that stopped every avenue to success. Bert was only 55, but he wanted to rest. He was half convinced that a curse rested upon him. So that's the story. He becomes quickly very engrossed in the community, becomes a major figure in the pastures of heaven. And um, this story does a lot to kind of set up um, um, the, the setting. It's one of the few stories that actually doesn't really hit you really hard as a brutal opening story. The Monroes end this story in a good situation. They've broken this curse of the battle farm. Uh, all the rest of the stories, though, end in a very bittersweet, ironic, or, or kind of devastating way. Um, chapter three. The, chapter three is the story of Edward Wicks. Edward Wicks um, is, if the Monroe story tells us why people want to come to the battle farm, Edward Wicks' story tells us about the reality of the people who live there. He takes on the name of the shark, which is his kind of nickname. He's considered wealthy, but he's not actually wealthy. He puts on airs of being wealthy, though. He had some money at one point, but he, he lost it. As it's quoted here, Shark's greatest pleasure came out of being considered a wealthy man. Indeed, he enjoyed it so much that the wealthy itself, wealth itself became real to him. 
Setting his imaginary fortune at $50,000, he kept a ledger in which he calculated his interest and entered records of his various investments. Now, I'm sure people do this, um, you know, play the stock market kind of imaginary, almost like playing um, fantasy baseball or something. But he projects this aura of being rich, even though he wears kind of shabby clothes. And then he just can say, well, I'm a modest man, right? He's a metaphor for many things, perhaps, the, the false facade of wealth and prosperity. It could be America. It could be the pastures of heaven themselves. Um, it could be any many things. Um, patriarchy. Um, Shark is kind of the patriarch, patriarchal figure. Um, and we're going to have to deal with uh, Steinbeck's views on women eventually. Um, a lot of the women in his stories are essentially prostitutes, um, at least in these early tales. And, and it's a it's a problem we have to deal with. Uh, you know, his his figures are like are are these migrant workers, are men, people moving around a lot, and the women in these characters tend to serve functions of either giving children to 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 male characters, or in stories like Tortilla Flack and Mice, Mice and Men, the women are there kind of as sexual objects for migrant workers. You see it a little bit in Dubious Battle too, where even the characters are supposed to sympathize with talk about women essentially as as whores. I'm, I'm thinking of even George when he's talking to Lenny in the very opening pages of A Mice and Men where he says, like, if I didn't have you around, I could I could have a woman. But when he actually starts to explain what he means by this, he means essentially a woman once a month, right? Uh, when he goes into town with a bit of cash. Anyways, back to Edward Wicks, the shark. He marries a woman for very indifferent reasons. He has a child, Alice, who he eventually fetishizes and idealizes. He considers her um, as part of his possessions, a treasure that he must protect, like he protects the money in his ledger and his reputation as a rich man. He's obsessive about her virginity from any figure of the male, of the male community of the pastures of heaven, and it becomes really gross at, it, at times. Quote, he thought he read covetiveness in every male face. Often when he was working in the orchards, he tortured himself by imagining scenes wherein gypsies stole the little girl. A dozen times a day, he cautioned her against dangerous things. The hind heels of horses, the highness of fences, the danger that's lurked in gullies, and the absolute suicide of crossing a road without carefully looking for approaching automobiles. Every neighbor, every peddler, and worst of all, every stranger he looked upon as a possible kidnapper. When tramps were reported in the pasture of heaven, he never let the girl out of his sight. Picnickers wondered at Shark's ferocity and ordered them off his land. He suspects Jim Monroe most of all. Jim Monroe has a bad reputation. He's, he's not like the bully. He's, he's just kind of the guy with a lot of amativeness, I guess. He's, he's the man who has the reputation of being having too many girlfriends. So one night, his daughter, Alice, who's growing up, uh, she's dating age, she goes to a dance and ends up kissing Jimmy. This angers Shark, uh, and he goes out, gets his gun, and intends to shoot Jimmy, but he instead just hangs out in his car with his gun, and he's arrested. And here, various false fronts fall onto him. First, the whole facade of being a violent man is proven to be a false, because he's not going to actually shoot Jimmy. He's just going to, like, scare them, and he wants to feel like he's protecting his daughter's honor, but in fact, he's just a, a fool. Um, and then, when he's Arrested, he's given this really high bail because he's supposed to be a rich man and has proven he's exposed to the community because he can't cover his own bail. Um, the next story, the next story is The Little Frog, Tula Crito. 
Um, Tula Crito has a is basically a an orphan kid that's uh, found in the town. He's he's picked up by a man named Franklin Gomez, who basically found him on the street, literally um, raised him, um, and he's an idiot. He's apparently um, got some developmental disabilities. Quote, the boy grew rapidly, but at the fifth year, his brain did not grow anymore. At six, Tula Crito could do the work of a grown man. The long fingers of his hands were more dexterous and strong than most men's fingers. Um, now, this isn't a predecessor of Lenny. In fact, Tula Crito is very creative. He can draw, and he's got a very wild imagination. Um, he eventually is sent to school, because what else is he going to do? The community convinces Gomez that he has to go to school, and he does, and he's... He, Mrs. Martin, the teacher, becomes interested in Tula Crito, and she develops his creativity. There's a scene where like a substitute teacher erases some of his chalk drawings and he freaks out. Mrs. Martin, though, knows that his value is in his creativity. She tells him stories, often stories of folklore, about gnomes and other creatures, um, and really encourages him to draw and things like that. He starts to believe that the stories as real, and he starts digging holes looking for gnomes. He digs holes in a field and looking for gnomes and like the farmers on the field find these holes and so they fill them back in and they, they figure someone's digging around for tre treasure or gold or bandits are doing something there. So they post a guard, uh, keep an eye on it, and Tuller Crito comes back and digs a hole and hides in there hoping to find the gnome. Um, he jumps out and kind of attacks a man for trying to fill in the holes, I think it was. And anyways, Tula Crito gets arrested and sent to uh, an insane asylum. Sent to, what's the, we get the name of the place. Sent to the Asylum for the Criminally Insane at Napa for that. So Tula Crito's life is over because of a misunderstanding, unfortunately. And we don't ever see what would have happened to Tula Crito. Uh, so the pastures of heaven cannot save him. It is a nice place for him, though. It seems for him there is a bit of, of heaven. A very similar story is the next one, Helen Van Deventer. Hello, Helen Van Deventer, Chapter 5. Her husband died when her daughter Hilda was not yet born. So she has like a three-month marriage, which she carries around as kind of a badge of honor. She's a single mother. She's always suffering, and she needs suffering. And when she can't have it for herself... Uh, she invents it. She exaggerates the loss of her her husband, you know, like the love of her life lost. And uh, when it's revealed that Hilda, her daughter, has some kind of mental illness, it's not really defined what it is, but it seems she has a very hyper imagination and it, the hyper imagination leads her to not be able to differentiate between fantasy and reality. Um, Helen sort of cultivates this and doesn't do anything about it. And when the doctor says, you got to kind of give her some help. She says, no, I won't. And she moves to the pastures of heaven, thinking this can be the great future for us. The doctor um, is upset with this and kind of says, well, have it your way. Hilda's delusions continue when she's living in the pastures of heaven. Um, and when Helen realizes she can't help her daughter, not only that Hilda is preventing her from kind of becoming part of the community, of getting remarried, so she eventually murders her daughter. Um, by a stream, making it look like a suicide and blaming it on her, her delusions. There are deep parallels here to the Tula Crito stories. We have um, 
the kind of the teacher or in the work the parent in this case kind of cultivating the delusions and the imagination of of someone with a clear mental disability and that needs help but can't get it in the pasture of heaven so in Tula Crito gets sent to the insane asylum. Helen is not sent there, but instead she is, is killed by her parents. So um, the inheritance is a theme here, too. And I'll get to the themes in the second episode on the pasture of heaven. But the theme of inheritance is a big one here. And in this story, we have the inheritance of, of some sort of uh, mental problem. Like it's undiagnosed, untreated, and leads to tragedy in the end. Helen is never arrested because she does convince the police that it was a suicide. And in chapter six, we get Junian, um, Junian Maltby. Junian Malti is a quasi-intellectual. Uh, he marries and he gets some land through his marriage. And his wife dies young and he gets this farm. And he likes to read books. He likes to read Herodotus and the Greeks. And he's, you know, kind of a lazy guy, essentially. He's just a lazy guy. Um he works hard at like his mind, at his ideas. He doesn't mind poverty. He, he's comfortable with poverty. For, for him, it's not a big deal as long as he has a life of the mind. He has a son from his wife, Robbie, and he gives Robbie total freedom. He's kind of like a Huck Finn character, except and Huck Finn, Pap, is not a quasi-intellectual at all. Um, he tells Robbie these stories, but Robbie doesn't get any formal education and, he, and certainly not in how to run a farm. So this freedom leads to essentially a life of poverty for both Junius and, and Robbie. Quote, the people of the pastures of heaven recoiled from Junius Maltby after the death of his wife and his two boys. Stories of his callousness during the epidemic grew to such proportions they eventually fell down under their own weight and were nearly forgotten. But although his neighbors forgot that Junius had read while his children died, they could not forget the problem he was becoming. Here in the Fertile Valley, he lived in fearful poverty. While other families built small fortunes, bought Fords and radios, put in electricity, and went twice a week into the moving pictures in Monterey or Salinas, Junius degenerated and became a ragged savage. End quote. So, yeah, there was, there was actually his wife died and two of his sons died, but the one, Robbie, um, survives. He's eventually talked into giving, sending his kid to school. And at school, he's quite popular. So, again, we kind of have a Huck Finn parallel in the sense that Huck Finn is a pariah from the perspective of the adults, but the kids kind of like him, and he becomes very popular in school. But his poverty does lead the school to give Robbie a set of new clothes, and, and this embarrasses Junius so much. Um, it's kind of a weird thing. It's like, almost like the poverty everyone knew about, but the minute it gets confronted directly by the community through the offer or gift of new clothes, it becomes an embarrassment to him. Junius decides he must leave the freedom and paradise of the pastures of heaven and go to the city, uh, presumably to get a job, ending their idyllic happiness and their idyllic paradise. So it's kind of a tragic ending for them, too. Um, now, I'll, I'll do the other six stories in this next, second episode on the pastures of heaven. But first, I, I just want to say that every character here is very compelling, very powerful, very well-defined. These are really great character studies, and it really shows Steinbeck as a brilliant writer from early early on. The writing is very direct and very honest. We really feel that we are going into an, the intimate details of the small town and seeing beyond the facade. And that's the theme here. The theme is that the beauty on the outside, but deep down, this this the town is is fairly corrupted and um, a dead end or a 
a place of frustration, a place of failure. It's this mythical happiness, right? Seeing the countries escape from troubles. The facade of the shark exists for everyone in the pastures of heaven. So anyways, thanks so much for listening. And I'll be back shortly with the second part of the pastures of heaven. Um, and that's it. Again, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Stopped into a church I passed along